We're turning to Romans chapter 12. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament, so it's towards the back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. If you're using one of the black paperback Bibles, that's on page 811, and in the gold Bibles, that's page 552. Now, many of you know that in the fall, we were in a sermon series in the book of Genesis. We were trying to get a, a vision for how the Bible introduces God to us. It's the first book of the Bible, and we were seeing who is this God who made the world. And we are going to get back to Genesis. We took a break from Genesis in December to look at uh, Advent, at the coming of Jesus, what it means for us. And we're going to get back to Genesis, but here, the first, the first three uh, Sundays of January, we're going to kind of do a mini-series together looking at our life together as a church, looking at what it means to be God's people, what it means to love one another. And the reason we're doing that is because it's not uncommon for me or for Pastor Adam to hear something like this from someone who's visited Sunrise. This is not a quote. This is a, a kind of a composite. I really like a lot of things about Sunrise. I like seeing young people worshiping God. The preaching helps me understand the Bible. I love how we sing together. But I've been coming for a while, and no one has introduced themselves to me. Or, Everyone is very warm on Sunday mornings, but I want to actually get to know people, and that's not easy at sunrise. I've been coming for a while, and I'm still lonely. Or, there seems to be a type of person that fits at sunrise. Everybody's this type, and I don't think that I'm the type. I don't know where I fit at sunrise. Now, I know that's not everyone's experience, but it is the experience of some. And so we want to spend... A few weeks at the beginning of the year looking at what it means to be the church, to love one another the way God is calling us to love. And so we're going to be reminding ourselves what this means. And here's how I want you to be engaging. Here's how I want us as a church to be engaging. I'm, I'm preaching to myself too. This is how we're going to be engaging together in this. As you're listening to what God calls us to in the Bible, I want you to be asking, is this true of me? Am I doing this? Am I living this way? And if you're not, don't get discouraged. Just as often as you think, I'm not sure I'm living this way. I'm not sure that I'm doing this. Just ask God's forgiveness and ask his help to become this kind of person. Let's just be, let's be praying as we go through this that God would make us a people who loves well. And this morning we're going to start that by looking at the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 12. And we're especially going to be focusing in on verses 9 and 10. Now, I, I have only been to New York City one time, and I was only there for one day, mainly an afternoon, actually. And so I, I, I wanted to see the city, but I, I knew I couldn't get very much done. And so I was traveling with a friend. We were visiting a friend of his who is a native New Yorker, lives in the city. And we just said, okay, show us what you can in an afternoon. And so the way you do that is you just get on the subway and you kind of pop up and he says, all right, this is Times Square, back on the subway. And then you pop up, this is Central Park, back on the subway. And you pop, this is Wall Street, okay, back on the subway. Brooklyn Bridge, this is Greenwich Village, this is Fifth Avenue. And you, you don't really get a, a feel for the whole city, but you just see kind of the high points and you begin to get a sense of what this is, what this city is about and what I'm going to do when I come back and visit for real. And that's about all we can do with the first eight verses of Romans 12. We're just gonna, I'm going to touch a couple things, point a couple things out. You can come back to it later, but I just want to get a sense of where Paul is going so we can really focus on verses 9 and 10, where he talks about love. So 
But let's, let's read it together before we get into that. Um, please follow along as I read from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray together. Our Father, we we stand in need as we do every Sunday. We stand in need of you. This book is you speaking to us. It is your word. And we want you this morning, in this time, to come by your Spirit and to speak it again to us, to speak it to our hearts, to speak to us in such a way that, that we change, that we understand what you're calling us to and that we, we want to live that way. And so come and speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's Paul's main idea in verses 9 and 10 is what he says right at the beginning of verse 9. Let love be genuine. That's what he's aiming at. But we want to see in verses 1 to 8 how he lays the groundwork for that. And then in in verses 9 and 10 how he unpacks it. What it looks like to let love be genuine. So the way we're going to approach this is to see in this passage three foundational truths about genuine love. And then three practical descriptions of genuine love. And you should have an outline on the back of your bulletin if you got one when you came in. So the first foundational truth, the first thing that, that, that Paul does to lay the groundwork for this call is he says that those who receive the mercy of God belong to God. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. So these verses are they're a turning point in the flow of Romans. Paul has, for 11 chapters, been unpacking what he calls the mercies of God, what God has done for us. And in chapter 12, he begins to tell us how to live in response to that, how to live by the mercies of God. So what are God's mercies? Well, actually, before we can even get into that, we need to, we need to see why it is that we need mercy. Why do we need God's mercies? The reason we need mercy is what Paul calls sin, and that's what he talks about at the beginning of Romans. He says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the perfection that God made us for. He made us to love him most, 
and we don't. He made us to live to please him, and we live to please ourselves. We reject God's truth. We reject God's worth. We live as though he's not even out there. Our creator, we treat like he's nothing. That's sin. And because of sin, Paul says that God's wrath is coming, his judgment on sin. God's a perfectly just judge, and and rejecting him, rebelling against him, ignoring him, those are crimes against him. And Paul says that the wages of sin, the penalty for our crimes against God, the penalty for that is death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. That's why we need mercy. But we don't, Paul doesn't just talk about why we need mercy. He talks about the mercy we've been shown. He says, God hasn't given us what we deserve. His wrath hasn't come against us. That, that instead, in the greatest act of love in history, God's son took God's wrath on the cross. He suffered what we deserve, death and separation from God. And if we trust in him, if we put our faith in him, all our sins are forgiven. Jesus takes our sin, dies in our place. We get his righteousness. We're counted as sinless in God's sight as Jesus himself. And God's mercies don't stop there. Everyone who's forgiven by God is also adopted by God. We become his children. We know that we have the fullness of his love, that he, for the rest of our lives, will always be for us and never against us. And more than that, there's more mercy. He, everyone who trusts in him receives his Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes to dwell in us and actually transform us from the inside out so we don't sin the way we did before, so we can actually live the way God has called us to live. Paul tells us that what we deserve is death and hell, and what we've received is forgiveness and righteousness and adoption and transformation. That's the mercies of God. And Paul says, if you've seen that, if you've seen what God's done for you, you've seen that he saved you at the cost of his son's life, the only reasonable response to that is to give yourself entirely to him, to offer your life to him as your act of worship, to let your life be a living sacrifice, an offering of praise to God. And so here in chapter 12, Paul is arguing that that is the response we need, that you know, what God has done for us, his mercies, they cost us nothing. Jesus paid it all, but our response is to give ourselves entirely to him. Present your body to him as a living sacrifice. Love God by living his way and doing whatever he says. Now there's a story in Mark's gospel chapter 10, about Jesus, is, he's traveling, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and along the road, there's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And he, he's a beggar because he's blind. He can't, he can't work, he can't do anything else. He just sits by the road and he begs. And he hears that Jesus is passing by, and he cries out to him in a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone around him is saying, quiet. You're you're just embarrassing yourself. Jesus is important. He's got better things to do. You just need to be quiet and let him be. And he keeps crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears it and he calls him to himself and he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. And Jesus heals him. And what he says to him is he says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He says, I've healed you. Your eyes are healed. You can do anything you want now. You don't have to sit here and beg. You're healed. Go your way. And do you know where he goes? He goes with Jesus. He says, I can go anywhere I want. I want to go with you. I want to follow the one who showed me mercy. 
And that's what Paul is saying our hearts should be like here. He's saying if, if you've seen the mercies of God, you've experienced the mercies of God, give yourself to him, follow him, do everything he calls you to do. Those who receive the mercy of God belong to God. And when we offer ourselves to God, he places us in community. That's the second foundational truth about genuine love. Those who belong to God belong to each other. We belong to one another. Paul uses a word picture in verses 4 to 5. It's, it's famous. He uses it several places. I want you to look there with me. Chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Paul says that part of what it means to belong to God, part of what it means to be in Christ, united to Jesus through trusting in him, is to belong to a body, to be part of a body. Christians can't live alone any more than a heart can live on its own. Right? The heart can't beat unless the brain tells it to. The brain doesn't work unless the heart is pumping. My hands can't pick up my Bible unless my arms and my muscles are working together. A body works together. Every part is necessary. Every part needs all the others. We're members one of another. That's what he says is true of our lives. So those who belong to God belong to one another. We can't do what God's called us to do. We can't be who God's called us to be alone. We can't do it on, God hasn't designed it that way. God has made us all amazingly different. We have different strengths. We have different gifts. We have different experiences. We have different wisdom. And the only way that we can live, as he's called us to live, as living sacrifices to him is together, is depending on one another. We need others to speak into our lives and serve us with their gifts and pray for us, and others need us. So you can pretty easily examine whether you have this attitude about the church that he's calling us to. Ask yourself, are my relationships with other Christians, with the people in this room, optional or necessary for me? Do I come to church because it's nice, because I like to hear preaching and I like to sing and this is where those things happen, or do I come to church because I know that I need these people? I know they need me. Is church just a place you come to get filled up or topped off? Or is church these people who are essential to my life, these people that I desperately need? Christianity is not a hobby. Fishing is a hobby. And I, I'm not demeaning fishing. I, I love fishing. I grew up fishing. But fishing... Fishing is nice to do with other people. It's more fun that way a lot of time, but fishing you can do alone, right? You can go, it's nice to go to the movies with other people, but you can do that alone. It's nice to work out with other people, but you can do that alone. You can't do Christianity alone. Now, it's true that we have individual walks with God. We come to him through putting our individual trust in him. We meet with him alone, read the Bible and pray. There are parts of our life with him we don't share with everybody, but but. On the whole, the, the Christian life, we can't do on our own. Our lives are supposed to be intertwined. We're a body. We belong to one another. We can't be absent from a community of believers without hurting that community because they need what God has put in us for their good. And we can't be absent from the church without, without hurting ourselves because we need the grace that God brings through the people that are part of the community. The night before he died, Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The thing that makes us recognizable to other people as followers of Jesus is a thing we can't do alone. It's loving one another. Success in the Christian life is not measured by how much you know or how much you pray or how much you give away. It's measured by love. And that leads to the third foundational truth that Paul gets to in chapter 12. Those who belong to one another must genuinely love one another. That's verse 9, right? Let love be genuine. What he says literally is let love be without hypocrisy. If one danger is that we try to live the Christian life alone, another danger is that we come together wearing masks. We pretend to be someone we're not. We pretend to love one another, but it's not real. It's not genuine. Real love is costly. To really love another person, you have to commit yourself to them knowing that you might have to give more to the relationship than they do. You might have to give more time, more money, more empathy, more prayer. To really love another person, you have to get close enough to them to be hurt by them and disappointed by them and sinned against by them. You have to know that you're going to get close enough to them that eventually you're going to let them down. You have to get close enough that they can see that you don't have it all together either, that you're going to need their forgiveness. Real love requires you to give and forgive and get hurt and get inconvenienced, and it's, it's easier just to pretend. It's easier to come here on Sundays and be nice and kind and friendly, to make small talk and share a laugh, but to never really open our lives to one another. If someone here were really struggling with depression, would you want to know? Would you want them to tell you so that you could care for them in it? If someone here were really struggling financially, would you want to know? Would you want to know so that you can give them something to help make sure they have enough? If someone here were lonely, would you want to know so you can befriend them and welcome them into your life? Or would you be sort of hoping that someone else would do that? Sunrise is a nice church. We're friendly people, I think. But do we want to be a loving church? Do we want to genuinely love one another, even though it will be costly, because we know that's what God wants for us? We who have received God's mercy, we belong to God. We offer our lives to him, and he sets the agenda. And his agenda for us is love, is to love one another as he has loved us. And if the Christian life is our expression of worship to him, then it can't be a mask. It can't be fake. It has to be wholehearted. It has to be from the inside out. It has to be genuine. And in verses 9 to 10, Paul gives us three practical descriptions of what genuine love looks like in life. So first, genuine love aims at godliness. Now look at the second part of verse 9. He says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now that's kind of a weird transition, isn't it? He says, let love be genuine, And now he's telling us what love looks like. And the first thing he tells us is, if you want to love well, you have to hate something, right? Isn't that what abhor means? It means hate. It means have a horror of something. Part of loving one another is hating evil. Now, I remember the first time I was truly scared in a movie theater. It was Jurassic Park. And... and, um, Uh, My parents had made me read the book before I could see the movie, 
which wasn't a great idea because the book is worse than the movie, but they made me read the book so I would know what I was getting into. And so I, I knew the general plot of Jurassic Park, but there were still movies, points in that movie that just made me jump out of my seat. And one of them, if you've seen it, if you saw it in the theaters especially, you'll remember this vividly. There's that scene where Dr. Sattler, Laura Dern, is in the bunker and she is switching on the breakers to turn the power back up in Jurassic Park, right? And she, she has this moment of just absolute relief and then all of a sudden this velociraptor comes through the screen behind her, right? There's this wire mesh and there's all of a sudden there's a velociraptor just trying to get at her. And, and she, what does she do? She abhors the velociraptor, right? She has a horror of it. She doesn't like, oh, a velociraptor. She, she runs, right? She gets away from it as absolute fast as you can. When you, when you abhor something, you flee from it. You run from it. You want nothing to do with it. Paul says that, that Christianity isn't just about learning rules and keeping them. It's about coming to feel in your heart the way God feels about things, coming to hate what God hates, coming to embrace and love what God embraces and loves. Now, what does that have to do with genuine love? You don't really love another person until you are emotionally invested in their growth and godliness. When you really love a person and you see them living contrary to God's will, it bothers you. You, you have a horror of how their sin is keeping them from God's best for them. If, if when you see a person living contrary to God's will, it doesn't bother you, your love isn't genuine. Our culture has this idea that loving someone means approving of their choices. So people say, if you can't accept that this is who I am, if you can't accept that this is who I love, then you don't really love me, right? There's this idea floating around that we have to choose between loving people and believing in right and wrong. But Paul says, no, that's not love at all. Love means wanting the absolute best for another person, wanting to see them flourish, become the person that God made them to be. And the more you love them, the more concerned you're going to be by anything in their life keeping them from that. The more you love a person, the more you hate whatever enslaves and destroys them. Right? Nobody, nobody likes cancer. But you don't really hate cancer until you see it consuming someone that you love. It's because of how much you love the person that you hate what's attacking them. It's the same with sin. The more you love a person, the more you want to see them set free from the bad habits and the crooked desires that are just taking them away from where God wants them to be. So if you see someone cutting ethical corners at work or becoming dependent on alcohol or withdrawing emotionally from their marriage, if you genuinely love them, you'll get involved. You'll pray for them. Eventually, you'll say something to them. You'll say, I love you, and I can see this, this struggle you're having in your life, and I want to help you get back on the path that God's calling you to. If you see trouble in their life and you can just let it go, that's not genuine love. It's a mask because real love gets involved. Now, if we're going to love each other like this at sunrise, we're going to need to really know each other and really trust each other. You can't have conversations about the hardest parts of your life with someone you've only met a couple times. Part of the reason why we encourage people to get into a community group is so there's a group of people in this church that actually knows you, and you trust them, and they see your life. So if something starts to go wrong, someone comes to you in love and says something about it. You're probably not going to develop this kind of relationship just chatting on Sunday mornings over coffee. So practically, genuine love aims at godliness. And the second thing is that genuine love cares like we're family. Look at verse 10. 
love one another with brotherly affection. The word Paul uses there describes the kind of love that's natural to a family. Okay, so my wife is going to have a baby any day, literally any day. She might be in labor right now. We were trying to figure out if there was a hand signal that she could use to let me know that her water has broken during the sermon. So any day, she's going to have a baby. And so if you see me in a few weeks, you see me kind of cradling a little bundle, you're going to say, I bet you're just so in love with that little girl. And I'm going to say, you're right. I'm not going to say, well, I, I hardly know her. Like we're, let's, we'll give it some time and... And maybe, maybe she's going to like some of the things, same things that I like. We're going to share some hobbies together. And I could see myself coming to love her. No, it's, there's a kind of love that's natural to a family. It's not because of what you have in common. It's because you're a family. And if it's missing, that would be a concern. And Paul says the same kind of love that family members have for one another, Christians should have for one another. And that means at least two things. One thing is that we should be the last people to give up on one another. So if you have a neighbor who's an addict, you might kind of have a superficial relationship with them, but you, you might kind of avoid them sometimes just because you don't want to get into it. If it's a friend, well, you're going you're gonna to take their calls for a while. You're going to want to help, but at some point, you might get to the point where you say, this is just too much for me. But if it's your brother, right? Families are the absolute last people to give up on one another. We don't just cut each other out of our lives when we let each other down. And that's how we should be as God's people. We should bear with one another and forgive one another and hold out hope for one another. So if someone in your community group or here hurts you or lets you down, disappoints you, genuine love means forgiving them and continuing to treat them like family. You don't just kind of cut them out of your life. And the other implication is that we should be able to care for people who are very different from ourselves. All Christians are family, so we shouldn't just care for the people who come from the same country we come from or who work in the same industry that we work in or who have the same hobbies that we have. One of the ways that we're going to know that we're growing in this as a, as a community, as a church, is, is when there are more people having genuine friendships and genuinely caring for people that are not like them at all, that the only thing they share together is that they trust in Jesus and love him. Genuine love cares like we're family, all of us. And, and finally, genuine love leads in being last. Look at the end of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul says that there should be a competition in the life of the church. We should be racing one another, trying to outdo one another, trying to get ahead of one another. And the thing we should be outdoing one another in is honoring one another. When you honor a person, you, you treat them as though they're more important than you, as though they're more worthy of service than you are. So the thing we should outdo one another in is putting one another ahead of ourselves. We should lead in being last. Now think of the best marriages you know. Isn't, isn't this what characterizes them? In the best marriage, each spouse wants to do more of the serving. So when they're both tired and the sink is full of dishes, they're not just trying to wait each other out. They're not, trying to just, they're not just reciting in their mind all the reasons why they've done more than their share, and it should be her time this time, right? You see an opportunity to honor your spouse, to put your spouse ahead of yourselves, and you race to do the dishes. Well, 
Maybe you don't race to do the dishes, but you, you get off the couch, right? How does this look in church? If you're new to Sunrise, it'd be natural to come on Sunday mornings thinking, I hope someone remembers my name. I hope someone sits with me. I hope someone asks me how I'm doing. But if you're leading and being last, you could think, I'm not going to wait for someone else. I'm going to learn someone's name. I'm going to see who's sitting alone. I'm going to sit with them. I'm going to ask somebody else how they're doing. When you come to community group, instead of, some, instead of hoping someone will ask you about the thing you shared the week before, you try to remember what other people shared and what you can ask them about. If you want deeper relationships here, take the lead in asking good questions and praying consistently for people and initiating lunches and coffees. Come not looking to be served, but to serve. What you wish someone else would do for you, do for them. God is calling us to genuine love for one another, real love. And we've only scratched the surface of it this morning, but even what we've seen this morning is enough to be a little overwhelming. To really love each other means to get involved in the most difficult parts of each other's lives, to pray and to speak and to strive for godliness together. It means to treat each other like family, even though it's going to cost us time and money and grief and forgiveness. It means to seek everyone's honor but our own. When you're doing it right, you come last. Your desires come last. The kind of love God is calling us to is impossible apart from his mercies. We can't do this just by trying. We do it by staring into the mercies of God, by seeing what he has done for us, how he has loved us. Jesus sought us when we were utterly unlovely, when we were utterly unworthy. He involved himself in our lives and made us his family. Though he was greater than all, he made himself least of all by going to the cross and dying in our place. Jesus loves us with a costly love. He loves us with a genuine love. And he wants to fill us with that kind of love for one another. So will you open yourself to that? Will you make yourself available for that, can we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, trusting him to lead us into what is good and acceptable and perfect, into genuine love? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the way you have loved us. We thank you for your mercies. We deserve none of what you've done for us, and yet you have, you have loved us with the costliest love in history. You have loved us at the cost of your son's life. Lord Jesus, you sought us when we had nothing to offer you, and you devoted yourself to us. And we want to devote ourselves to one another. And we can't do it on our own. We can't do it in our strength. We're too weak we're too selfish. We need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to make us people of love. And so help us. Help us to turn from selfishness. Help us to, to repent of, of building our lives around ourselves and help us to love as we've been loved. Make us a place where people encounter you in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.